Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is a public affair. And today we are interviewing Rachel Cowder Nailbuff. Who is did a, it. <laughs> thank you. I'm like, I really, I like, I had to build up some courage around this name. Um, a huge shout out to our engineer and our producer today. Thanks for getting back to us, Ben. Um, Jade, I'm glad you're only doing one job and you're doing it well because you made sure I could pronounce that name by putting it in the chat. Um, so now that I've said your name, I'm going to tell people who you are, Rachel. Rachel is a writer who weaves oral history performances and public health into beautiful stories. She is the author of the best-selling book, My Little Red Book, and now Rachel's newest project, Our Red Book. Rachel is here to talk about the book, which is out in the world today. Um, It's such a cool book. It's like, there's like graphic novel portions. There's beautiful storytelling. It's poetic. It's romantic. It's heartbreaking. It also features some of our very own like Madison alum and the, the young people of Bleed Shamelessly, who I'm so proud of. Rachel, what inspired you to write this book or to really continue your, your writing on kind of menstrual equality um, and what it means to be a person who bleeds. Yes. Um, so happy to be here. First, I just want to say that. Um, and so about 10 years ago, I published this book, as you mentioned, called My Little Red Book, which was a collection of mostly stories and oral histories about first periods. And I made that book basically as a resource that I wish I had had as a teenager. And I I started working on it as a teenager, actually. Um, it started as a family oral history project and sort of unexpectedly grew and took off. Um, and I really had imagined that book at the time as like a mother-daughter gift. Um, and that was sort of how it entered the world. Um, it was a different era, of course. Um, but what was really interesting was after it came out, I was pretty surprised because some of the most enthusiastic readers were single dads. Mm. Right? I know. I would say that a lot occurred to me. And they wrote to me and they basically said, like, I don't have any stories of my own to pass down to, you know, my, my teens. But also I needed to learn um, about what happens. And just this is such a valuable resource for me and for my family. And so... 10 years ago, I started thinking, um, you know, maybe this kind of book needs to welcome more readers in. Um, And then also in the past 10 years, the way we've been talking about menstruation has shifted so much in the U.S. Um, There are so many amazing activists like Bleed Shamelessly, who are featured in the book, who are really making menstrual equity a public cause um, and breaking the taboo. And so it kind of feels like we're at a pivotal moment in terms of being able to talk about menstruation in all of its complexity, because it doesn't have to just be about like breaking the silence um, or countering shame with celebration, right? And so um, for the first time, stories about the huge range of feelings and human experience connected to menstruation can be shared. So in these past years, um, I, oh, is the sound a little weird? You just went in and out just a little, a little bit. Okay. But yeah, in the past 10 years, I basically have been hearing more and more kinds of accounts and not just about first periods. I heard fascinating stories from trans folks, for example, about period negativity, this feeling of dread around your period. Um, I heard stories about periods as it's connected to cancer and chemo, periods, stories as it's connected to death and loss and the mysterious ways that our bodies respond to feelings and 
global events. And so this book really needed to be expanded to welcome in readers of all genders, of all ages. Um, and that's what our Red Book is. It's, it's, it's a much vaster, com more complex, sticky, um, honest collection. It is it is a, a really like beautiful collection of stories, of words, of experiences, of images. Um, and I love that at the beginning of the book, there's this note from the editor that says, hey, this is it says it in a much like more poetic and well <laughs> and well put way that I'm going to re re retell it. But it says like, hey, this is a this is the story of many stories, but it's not every story. And I thought that that was a really humbling way to start this book because I think you all really emphasized diversity, um, diverse experiences. This is a book that, you know, it's funny that it features Madison because it's a collection <laughs> of stories from around the world. And so you think like, oh, wow, I'm, you know, if it wasn't for the amazing young people of Madison, I don't know if we could have made a, a book that is, you know, this expansive and this inclusive and this intentionally diverse. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about finding these these stories and how you got people to feel comfortable talking about some of the most intimate moments of their lives or most terrifying moments in their lives um, and being willing to to share those stories with the world? Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like you get this book so deeply. Thank you for those words. Um, so first I just want to say this book was gathered in, in a very unconventional way. Um, I didn't like receive submissions that I, you know, edited or selected. I have been on this ride, this unexpected journey that I feel like was almost chosen for me because of a story in my own family that I heard as a teenager that I have just been on since age 12, which is wild. It's like my adult life. I It really started by hearing this story in my own family from my great aunt who got her first period while she was fleeing Nazi-occupied Poland and literally, it's a it's a harrowing account while being strip searched um, by officers. Who, anyways, it's 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 incredibly um, dark and powerful. And what was really striking was that she had never shared this story. And so, I'm telling you this because her story prompted everyone else in my family um, to begin telling their own stories with one another because we had never heard this story until I was a teenager. And the book, both of these books grew organically for, through word of mouth, through literally one person saying, okay, I'm gonna tell you my story, but you need to talk to my hairdresser because she's a twin or like my, my cousin or my cousin's mom or whatever it is. Um, and one person pointed me to the next and I think that's, the only way a book like this could ever happen, because as you said, these stories are so intimate. They are, some of them really touch on what feels like the sacred. Um, it feels like such a gift to read them, I hope, but certainly to have heard them. Um, and so with the stories in Madison, for example, um, I had, the world of menstrual justice is very small. And so, um, I had heard about them partially because I am a big fan of um, Madame Gandhi, Kieran Gandhi, who famously ran the London Marathon while free bleeding. Yes. And yes, it, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and basically through her have been following all of these youth led organizations that um, are really proponents of menstrual justice. And um through talking with them, just their contribution in the book is a great example. After talking with them, they said, hey, okay, our bent on menstrual justice is important, but we also want you to talk to our friend, Juliana Baldo, who also lives in Madison, <laughs> about the intersection of climate change and menstrual justice. Um, that was an amazing conversation. And then after talking with all of them, I thought, you know what, I really want to share these accounts with these leaders around the world that are actually executing exactly what these teens are talking about, but on a national level. And so I wrote 
to the Prime Minister of Scotland <laughs> because Scotland at the time and now it's passed is the first country to um, pass legislation to make period products nationally free, right? And I ended up talking with the legislators who made that policy possible. So just to illustrate, um, this book is like a, is a journey. And I realized pretty early on in the, in the writing process and the editing process that I needed to let readers into that journey because really one story um, led to the next and I could never have predicted where, where they took me. Oh, thank you for, for sharing that. And it was, it was really, I think, in part of me thinking about how you got people to tell you these stories, I think I became fascinated with who you are as a, as a, as a listener, um, which I think is a different way to think about a writer um, as, as not the person who is, you know, kind of taking up the, the space or taking stage, but really felt like you were kind of this person that held the safest spotlight for people to step into. Um, and it does really start with that story of, of your aunt and how her getting her period saved her life. Um, and I think like, you know, that was such, it was such an immediate space to step into this book and go, wow, like if you make space for periods to be powerful, they are. Um, and if you're not dismissive of the experiences of people who have periods and the wide range of experiences, there is so much we can learn about what it means to be a person. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And if you want to join our conversation about our red book, the number is 608-256-2001 extension 9. We'd love to hear from your hear from you, your questions, your interest in the book, your story about your body, your period, your growth, your way of learning about puberty. Uh, before we jump back into the conversation, I just want to give a shout out to my 13-year-old, Adrian, who turns 13 today, is in the studio with us, um, knows all about periods because she's been reading about them for a long time and is, you know, a person who experiences menstruation. Um, and so... I'm glad she she got to be part of of reading this story with me. And I think that kind of a lot of times we think about sex and sexuality and menstruation and puberty as almost conversations that are inappropriate for kids. And we forget how young people can be um, when they go through puberty or when they get their first period. And this book is a really nice reminder of the vast you know, ages of people who have had their periods. I'm 35 years old. I've had my period for 22 years. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot there's a lot of stories there. Um, I love that that you talk about kind of the different situations or common themes of menstruation in this book. So there's a lot of diversity in this book. And there is also these kind of echoing moments of humor or echoing moments of what it's like to stain things or all of that. Um, that kind of connects these different stories in beautiful ways. What was it like for you as you were kind of putting these in order and, and deciding how these these stories were going to interact with each other um, to, to recognize those common themes? It's hmm, um, a good question. I, you know, I feel like these stories are so rich that I return to them and they mean something different to me every time as I get older. Um, and so, you know, for example, um, only now I'm, I'm 32 now and also the world has changed and I feel like we have a lot more vocabulary around inherited trauma, but like I, I see these stories now and I think, Oh my God, there's inherited trauma in all of these stories. Um, you see the way that history and politics affects our bodies. And that's like a profound through line in the book. Um, 10 yes. years ago, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to see that even though it was there. Um, and so I think that that's, that's part of why these stories are so, um, they contain so much, they contain more than I can understand even right now, I, I think. Um, and 
if it's okay, I want to touch on something you just said earlier about uh, talking to young people about periods at at an even younger age than you think might be necessary or important. I think, yes, that's another thread in this book. Um, And one of the really eye-opening moments for me was interviewing people, especially out of the U.S., about how they talk to their very young children about periods. and the importance in especially different cultures of uh, talking to your kids about periods as something that are beautiful, um, <clears throat> powerful, and even as one contributor um, in Brazil says, you know, a life source. And she's drawing on her indigenous heritage, um, which has a relationship to menstruation as, as I just said, a life source um, as, as something that's sacred. And um, there's an amazing, yeah, moment where she talks about how her two-year-old son basically saw a trace of her period. And in that moment, instead of like deciding to hide it or say, you know, we'll talk about this later, um, she uses that as an opportunity to say, this is a period, this is my period, and this is actually part of what made you grow. Yeah. <laughs> and so just that of, moment of like oh right you can talk to a baby a child a toddler about this sort of in different terms and from the very beginning even if it's not your tradition um necessarily to view menstrual blood as sacred you can talk about it in this way that's more connected to health um and to view periods as either you know on the scale of just like matter of fact to um important and something to respect and so i I just think i want to lean into the important and something to respect part of this conversation um because i think a lot of times when we talk about the history of bloodshed we really emphasize the experiences of men at war um and we don't talk about the bloodshed of creation we don't talk about all of the blood sweat and tears that goes into each of us existing and there's also this disconnect when we when we make menstruation an issue that is a women's issue we forget that you know we all originate as kind of a period right like that's kind of like we are that's kind of the starting place for everybody um and so what what was it like for you to to have this reverence for menstruation and be willing to kind of have these conversations with people in a world that treats menstruation as something that's not relevant to half the population something that shouldn't be talked about how do you you know kind of say, hey, I'm going to take up this space and and have this conversation, whether you think it's gross or not, whether you think it's appropriate or not, whether or not you think it's polite. Um, what what was it like to kind of to to be really bold in writing this book? Yeah, um, I think that that's actually part of my sort of secret hope for this book is that um, it becomes precisely that invitation and a really welcoming invitation for readers who don't menstruate to feel like um, they can learn and and kind of catch up <laughs> maybe or learn for the first time. Um, I heard a story that um, comes from Mexico actually that um, I mean, I think humor here is also so key um, and such a a tool for inviting people into a conversation that has really serious consequences when we don't have it. But um, there is a wonderful story from a father um, in Mexico in the book. So there are stories from men in the book. First, I should just say that that is part of why I hope it becomes inviting. Um, And these stories are very interesting. So the story from this father in Mexico basically happens because his teen daughter asks him to go buy menstrual care products. And it's the first time in his life that he has ever done this. And he basically has a panic attack in the supermarket. And his is like walking us through his realizations that he's made it all the way to age 40. um, And he has no idea what half the world goes through. He has no idea what his daughter is going through. He has no idea what his mothers, his sisters, his wife (laughs) come through. And I love this story and I really wanted it to be in the book because he basically has this consciousness raising moment where he kind of flips the switch and 
the silence among people who don't menstruate, um, amongst dads, brothers, boyfriends is so normalized that we don't think of it as weird or even disturbing or even as an absence or silence at all. And I think that's kind of what consciousness raising is. He points at it and he says, this silence is absurd. Mm. <laughs> and how did, I mean, and he, and I think what he says is also kind of remarkable. How many people had to um, basically censor information around me or keep me um, in the dark, like actively keep me in the dark and quote, protect me from this information in order for me to make it to age 40. And so I think if we think about it that way, that almost all of us, no matter our gender, have been deprived of information. Um, once you see it that way, then then things kind of shift. And so the male contributors in this book, um, I think, really shine a light on that um, through their own experience of learning. Well, and I think it's one thing to think about that as, you know, the the steps women or folks who menstruate have taken to keep their periods discreet. I think the other th way to think about that is the oppression that has gone into keeping folks who menstruate out of spaces and therefore they're like I, one of my favorite stories about integrating the workforce is you know this group of men working with women for the first time and a woman says to one of her male colleagues I've got to run to the restroom I've got my period and he says can you hold it and just the idea that he didn't know that that is a non-option. Um, and I actually think, I think about this because of my work in education on a regular basis, like what it's like to police how often people use the bathroom and what that means, particularly for adolescent girls um, as they get their periods in terms of like, oh, I have to ask for access to the bathroom and I, somebody might think I'm going to the bathroom too often, um, uh, those sorts of things. So I, I guess I want to ask, uh, this this book isn't gender neutral. It's in, it's expansive and it's inclusive. Um, but this this book confronts sexism um, on a regular basis within, you know, within the stories that are being told. What did it mean to you to really see people's lived experiences be, you know, real, I guess, real examples of how oppression plays out in people's everyday lives? Yeah, um, I think this book, these stories are such like material, physical examples of the way that sexism, racism, so much is held in the body and like is undeniable and is as real as like the shirt, this desk. Like it's, you read these stories and yes. um, it's hard. Some of these stories are hard. Um, many of them are, 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 are really heavy and, um, <laughs> And are really important and are really important. And I think one of the stories that um, really illustrates that to me in one of the most illuminating ways is actually an interview with a doctor and medical researcher who I got to talk to about the COVID vaccine um, and how many people had very um, serious side effects in their, in their menstrual patterns following vaccination um, and how basically, you know, people had heavier periods, missed their periods, people who had already gone through menopause got their period back. So things that were really alarming. Um, and unfortunately, this became this like perfect moment for misinformation because scientists couldn't say one way or another whether or not the vaccine affected periods because no one had studied it. Mm. Um, and that this is actually very typical for medical trials because menstruation is considered to be too complicated and like a confounding variable and basically like static noise, like it's irrelevant data. Um, and all of this connects back to like who is doing the research, um, what questions they're asking. And then, the very concrete fact that it wasn't until 1993 that um, clinical trials had to be representative of the general population. So women weren't even people who menstruate and women, minorities, everyone who's underrepresented was not included in the studies about the drugs that affect our bodies. And so um, that was a moment for me where I was like, 
damn, it's 2021. <laughs> and we're still seeing the ways that, um, yeah, misogyny uh, affects healthcare and, and, and what we're putting into our bodies, this policy, um, this national rollout has overlooked half the population, um, without any warning. And, and there, there are moments, you know, there are moments of this that are much more everyday, but that one was just so enormous and huge and undeniable. Um, and I hope it becomes, um, a kind of a, a learning moment for readers to see the ways that, Misogyny is is very real. Is very real. Has very real consequences. Mm. I I appreciate that you lean into the heaviness of the book. I think this book does have moments of humor and sweetness, and you know, just really just moments of sisterhood and camaraderie that are so beautiful. But there are things in this book that are really challenging to read about, and that are written from very candid spaces like I imagine you like in bed eating ice cream with these people I'm like they are really telling you like about one of their hardest days and I I I go to Sarah's story as an example of that Sarah is uh, a, a person in the book who talks about having a miscarriage on Ash Wednesday and I think you know one of the things I really loved about this book is that in the wake of of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, talking about menstruation, talking about privacy around menstruation, talking about miscarriage, talking about medically complex pregnancies, all of that becomes more necessary because you get the impression that the folks who are making these laws don't know what they're talking about. Um, when you were including, you know, miscarriage in this book, um, did you feel like? There was there was an agenda in terms of how you were going to share both information and what what what's really personal about a miscarriage. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, we need comprehensive sex education and we all need health. Don't don't you hold back, Rachel. What do we need? We need what from sex education? (laughs) We need comprehensive sex education. Um, we need so much. And uh, so this is not supposed to be a substitute. And I think of it a little bit as like a Trojan horse um, in the sense that I think we do learn through literature. We learn through stories. We learn through books. We learn through things we want to read and enjoy reading. And so, I mean, I learned so much from reading this book. And I actually think that's sort of the unique power of books, unlike scrolling on the internet or looking at it the internet where you already know kind of what you're hoping to find. You're just looking for the answer about abortion, miscarriage, menopause, a book like this. The power of having a chorus of stories is that you go in maybe hoping to read about a first period experience and then you end up learning about as you, as you mentioned in Sarah's story, miscarriage and the reality of how much many folks end up bleeding after birth. Um, you, you learn about um, transitioning genders. You learn about the whole complex range of possibilities for your body ahead um, because of the multitude of stories. Um, so I do hope that, I really do hope that it's educational and Thank you for making that link to Roe and all the legislation that's happening. Um, Well, and that story specifically, it was really easy to make that link because it's a miscarriage within the context of faith, right? It's a a person who is raised Catholic talking about how they're processing both what their body is going through and what they're binge watching on TV and their their relationship to God. Um, And I think it was... I I think that that kind of nuance is so often missing when we flatten something into a a political debate. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. You're so lucky to get to hear this conversation about our red book. We are 
interviewing Rachel Cowder Nailbuff, and she is the editor of this brand new collection of stories. And I think, you know, one of the other things about this collection of stories that I found to be pretty unique was that it's not formatted so that the stories kind of fit into one size you know like I feel like a lot of times when you read essays or collections it's like 700 words or it's you know three pages or you're kind of looking at a chapter um these stories are different lengths are different styles of writing are really unique in in their placement in the book and I I wondered how you did that because it was one of the things that made the book really enjoyable to me and it was also one of the things that I thought made this book incredibly accessible to young people. I read this with my with my kiddo um, and I thought, you know, on one hand I felt like she could see herself in this book but I also really wanted to bring this book into classrooms and schools because I felt like for all those young people who have had a, a sex ed experience that feels like an erasure of them, this book kind of gives gives kids back a little bit of themselves you know you can find yourself somewhere in this and there's something so precious there's such a gift in that how did you how did that evolve into reality how did you decide like I'm gonna let these stories be truly unique and and stand alone within the context of the overall book I love this question so much of organizing this book um, was with what you just said in mind, I, I had this image of myself as a teenager reading this book and trying to remember how I read and how young people read, even though it's made for readers of all ages. But I really wanted this to feel like this book that maybe is assigned in, in your classroom, but that like you actually really like. <laughs> That doesn't feel like homework and that you can't put down. And um, so that's part of why, you know, there's not like a typical introduction because I was like, if I write an introduction, I don't think a teenager will read it. Like I always skipped over that part. And if I use words like this is this anthology, this is an anthology or this is intersectional, you know, jargon. I didn't want there to be jargon. I wanted it to just feel human and for us to launch immediately into like the profound that is undeniable and undeniably intersectional and diverse without having to name it and for all these things to be self-evident. Um, so I'm so glad that that was your experience reading it. Um, yes, yes. And so, you know, I think because of my background as think, thinking about feminism um, and intersectional feminism, um, one of the things that was really important to me was how can I kind of reimagine the anthology format and how can it feel alive and enlivening and literary and poetic? And how can I be transparent? I think that's a really important kind of intersectional feminist question of like, how can I make it clear that I'm not this like invisible, like white man behind this book who has chosen the best stories um, and <clears throat> has made this like, allegedly neutral canonical anthology for you or for like American readers or whatever. Um, and instead just been really clear through the architecture of the book that um, I have a stake in this. I'm not this invisible person um, behind the book who's making these decisions that aren't evident. Um, and sorry, my dog is whining. <laughs> I'm gonna just let her out. Okay. I I feel like we have grown accustomed here at WORT 89.9 FM to the participation of pets and children and neighbors and people answering the door um, because we are still, you know, we're still nobody inter interviews in the studio anymore. We all. We all satellite in or we all communicate remotely. So I'm glad you're I'm glad you're loving your dog. And it was an appropriate moment because I was talking about being a real person. <laughs> and I I think um, that that sort of connects to your earlier point about like, how were you able to hear these really intimate, deeply personal accounts? And I think um, not only for the reader, but also for the contributor, I tried really hard to make it clear why I was asking someone 
about their story and why it felt important to me, why I was making this book, um, my own family's histories, my own story. There was always an exchange. I never wanted it to feel extractive. Um, and so, and I, and I talk a little bit about that in the book itself. Um, and I think that these, these stories in general have that effect on people where when you share your story, someone else is compelled to share theirs. Um, and so, yeah, all of that is kind of like woven into the reading experience um, as you go. It's um, hopefully something you kind of pick up on as you're reading. Well, and I think there are things in, in this book that open you up to have real conversations about the body and how you feel about your body. And I think there is this presumption with young people that they're going to pick this information up somewhere, somehow, right? Like somehow somebody's going to explain at some point that you have a cervix, right? Like, and there isn't necessarily this, you know, throughout your education or throughout, you know, kind of, I guess, rituals within our culture were explaining with intention, you know, how to empower people around around their bodies and how to empower people around understanding each other's bodies, which is one of the things I really appreciated about this book. And I was going to ask you, you know, how do men respond in this conversation? But the fact that you opened with the people who were reaching out to you for your first book were single dads. Um, one, I think is like so incredibly moving. Um, and also, you know, I think shows that this book is so needed um, and that these stories are so necessary because there is an absence of 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 this kind of storytelling of these of, of these kinds of narratives. Were there ever moments where you worried that a person would put this kind of story out into the world and experience some kind of backlash or experience some kind of discrimination or experience some kind of retaliation um, for the way they show up in this book, especially um, in a world that can be really dangerous, right? Like one of my, my most salient memories from getting an abortion as a teenager was the people standing outside, like screaming at me that I was a murderer. Um, were, were, did you think about like how there could be consequences for the way people show up in the in this book or have you thought about with your own family what it means to share their stories and and how that could negatively impact them or or force them to relive trauma um it's such a sensitive and important question and i think that was something that came up a lot in the editing process that we talked through with each contributor um, to make sure like, are you okay with sharing this? Are you a hundred percent okay with sharing this? So everything um, was a decision that was made very deliberately in dialogue with everyone who participated so that there was never a doubt that like, yes, I 100% stand behind sharing this. Um, and I think for a lot of people, um, thank you for sharing that story. It, it felt like perhaps a scary, but also important political decision to put a story out there with your name on it, um, because there shouldn't be shame around these certain subjects, whether it's abortion, miscarriage, um, the whole the whole realm of just human experience of just what our bodies go through. Um, I think it's interesting to think, though, about shame versus secrecy versus privacy. And I think one of the other things I thought about in reading this book is, oh, man, it's an intense idea to normalize menstruation, to normalize talking about menstruation, to destigmatize menstruation when Roe v. Wade has been overturned, when menstruation be can be used to implicate you criminally, when a, a, a miscarriage or an abortion um, can be can be used to incarcerate you. Um, and and so I think there's the concern for kind of how does the individual relate to their story and relate to people knowing their story. And then there is the the larger political ramifications of how we talk about menstruation and periods at this point in time in which a period can be used as evidence of a crime or the lack thereof a period can be used as evidence of a crime. Yes. Um, yes. And I think something I'm, I've been thinking about a lot recently is just how did we get to this moment? How did we get to this moment? And like, can we even talk with people about abortion in a way where they are willing to listen? I don't know. 
I don't know. I hope so, but I don't know. And so I wonder if by talking about menstruation, um, if by just rolling back the clock and actually going to where it begins, where the shame and the silence often begins, um, if it's possible to heal something there, if it's possible to invite more people in who maybe um, really need to be called in, <laughs> you know, um, and I think in a way it's more possible to have a dialogue there that is so interconnected with all of these other um, unfortunately politicized topics that shouldn't be politicized. Um, but that's another way in which I kind of hope these stories and just normalizing menstruation is actually doing political work, right? Because it says that um, healthcare, our bodies, the stories about our bodies are um, are important to talk about. It's it's part of health, and um, and and I think I think that scales up because if you learn that at a young age or even as an adult, um, you can't you can't help but but make the link. Um, and so I, I think there's something about going to this foundation of. Um, when we either first when when we when we first kind of learn a culture of shame and starting there returning to that pivotal moment for most american teens which often happens around puberty um and 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 so really examining that moment um because as as you say it's it's all it's all interconnected Absolutely. And one of the things I like about this book is I do really appreciate the inclusion of people who do not menstruate and the different ways that they show up in this book. And one of my, my favorite portions is this on page 268, not to read your own book to you, Rachel, but there is a, a person who says, I fell in love with you because you were so conscious and considerate about your daughter's first period. Um, and I, I think like, hey, man, if you're looking for a new way to impress the, the folks who menstruate in your life, um, being conscious and considerate uh, goes a long way. People fall in love, you know, based in that as kind of an, an initial characteristic of a person. And speaking of who all is included in this conversation, we have Dave on the line. Dave, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. Um, you know, I've read two different books uh, that discuss uh, abortion, and both of them talked about blackmail. Uh, one of them was uh, an early book by Bob Woodward about the Supreme Court. It was called The Brethren. Mm -hmm. And in it, uh, it was talking about how the Supreme Court dealt with Roe v. Wade. And the second book was a biography of Frank Sinatra. And it opened up uh, talking about Sinatra's mother was one of the biggest abortionists on the East Coast. And that uh, she... Uh, was that blackmail was a big part of uh, of the income stream of organized crime. If you got an abortion, not only could the woman get blackmailed for the rest of her life, but her father, her husband, her brothers and sisters, everybody in the family could be blackmailed. And with the Supreme Court book by Woodward, they mentioned that if a general got his mistress uh, uh, pregnant and she had an abortion, then the general could be uh, caused to release top secrets mm -hmm. and, uh, and that the security of the nation could be jeopardized by uh, blackmail regarding an abortion. And so a, a big uh, reason why uh, it was legalized in Roe v. Wade was because of extortion, that it was ruining the economy to have uh, organized crime have so much of the money uh, based upon extortion. So I'm wondering if your guest in doing the interviews, uh, if extortion ever came up in, in the interviews. You know, I, Dave, I did not know exactly where you were going to go with that, but I appreciate the the information and I so appreciate that you've expanded this conversation further than I, I thought we were even going to go today. Do you, do you feel like extortion showed up or that history of abortion and what, you know, access to abortion has meant showed up in, in this book? And, and how does that, you know, I guess align with what with what Dave kind of just spoke to? Yes. Um, well, the book touches on many subjects. Extortion doesn't come up, but <laughs> maybe for the next edition. Um, but one thing that I did really discover, Dave, about this book is that once 
you kind of open the door, um, these stories don't really stop and they're not neat and they can't categorize them. And somehow talking about um, your first period often will bring up a story about abortion or miscarriage um, and that these moments in our lives are oddly interconnected. Um, and so that's part of why I didn't want to put these into neat categories. As Ali mentioned, like there's not a section in the book that's just about, um, you know, teens or something because it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um, people see their histories in these very complex, interconnected ways, right? Um, and I think menstruation is just a, a window into how we view our bodies. Um, and yeah, it's, it's so, so yes, many of these people's accounts like touch on, on, um, multiple histories that are it's linked. true and there is there's you know the stories of of birth in this book and and the return of menstruation there's there's an essay essay by gloria steinem if men could menstruate right like there's this is it, it's there's a lot to it it's a good size book um and it's still a really easy book to read and I really I think it was very obvious that you didn't want this book to feel like you were reading somebody's dissertation um, you didn't you didn't want it to feel like an academic or, or, or science kind of text that this was really deeply rooted in people's stories and that wasn't a limitation of the book um, because you still got into, you know, people's anatomy and people's relationships to their bodies and the different kinds of fluids people expel. And, you know, I think you you were able to give people the space that they needed um, to to live really powerful lives um, as as we do. Um, and so I guess. You know, as we're wrapping up, Dave, I want to thank you for for calling and, and bringing that additional information. And I, I want to say that I think my fear in your question and you saying, well, maybe in the next edition of the book is I think, you know, what is what is menstruation in kind of this dystopian reality in which people are, are losing the rights to their body, where body autonomy is under bodily autonomy is under attack, where teenagers are afraid to, to track their periods on apps because they're, they're being told that that could um, be used against them. So I guess I, I want to talk to you about, you know, what you hope the, the future of menstrual equality looks like politically and, and really lean into what is the work that that we should be doing if we want to make sure that people who have periods, you know, are respected, get to live in dignity, um, have what they need to support their own hygiene. What are what are the things folks should be doing? Absolutely. Um yeah, so first, I think that's part of why this is a global collection, because stories from outside the U.S. show us um, how so much of what we accept as normal here um, would be considered discrimination um, and illegal in other countries. So I think I'm looking towards Scotland and New Zealand just as examples of countries that are models and the future that I really believe we are headed towards, though it will take a fight. And, you know, um, folks like the group from the Bleed Shamelessly group are actively contributing Shout to that. Shout out to Bleed, Bleed Shamelessly. We Shout love you here at WORT. Um and just demanding that as, and I think we're moving towards hopefully, yeah, just a more global culture where we have concrete examples of places where um, menstrual justice and the and access to period products that everybody needs in order to fully participate in society is considered a human right, is considered part of dignity, um, is considered part of healthcare. Is is considered foundational, and of course, that also includes um, the idea that healthcare and housing and food and all these other human rights are human rights and are considered as such. And we are sort of at an ideological in an ideological battle here in the U.S. around all of these things. But gosh, what an exciting time to be having that conversation publicly because. People believe in it. And once you've said it and once you taste it, you know that that's where we have to go. And so to see these examples around the world where that's already the case um, and where people's concerns around menstru free menstrual care products um, 
um, are non-issues. You know, people have concerns like, oh, well, will people abuse it and take more products? Um, and it's like, actually, already we have examples that show us that no, people um, respect um, the products that are out there and understand that they're for folks who need it um, <clears throat> and are still buying their own menstrual care products if they want them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think looking at menstrual justice is is really important, actually, because it's almost like a way to look at um, so many other forms of discrimination and impression that are that are linked together. Um, so it's so exciting to be talking about this issue, especially right before the election. We actually have this amazing yeah, no. opportunity we to are, vote. We are a week away from the election. You can vote right now. You can vote early. But this this is political. This is a political conversation. And as many people love your book and see your book as necessary and want these stories to be out there, there are people who are deeply threatened by by this kind of by this kind of reading, by this kind of sharing, by this kind of empowerment of girls and women and folks who menstruate um, and so I wonder you know what does it sound like when people push back against this book um, if you have folks saying hey we need these stories we need greater understanding we need more nuance and conversations about reproductive freedom and that's why this book is important what do the people who disagree with that say about your book you know the answer is kind of scary and the answer is censorship the answer is actually less like, I mean, oh, my gosh, did you write a book that's so good? People kind of want to ban it already. And it's just <laughs> on the shelf. That is one of my life goals is to write a book <laughs> that is good enough that people want to ban it. I mean, I I thank you. <laughs> it's a messed up world. I mean, it's um, yes, it's so tragic. But I do think like that just what I have come to come to realize is that the books people are the most afraid of often yeah. are are so deeply significant, are so deeply powerful. Um, yeah. And so uh, the idea that people want to censor this book, and is that, are people saying no one should read this book, kids shouldn't read this book, you know, what is what is the, is there a reason behind that censorship, or is there just a pile of books of yours that people have purchased in advance so that they can burn them this afternoon? Right, I mean I think we just live in a in the reality where literal health education is political and has become a political bargaining chip and librarians are losing their jobs from giving out you know books about trans youth or even judy bloom like judy bloom is one of the most censored authors in america and her contribution about her first period is actually in this book so um it shouldn't be politicized right but i think um there's just but it Already is, fear. and that's why you got to vote next week on Tuesday, November <laughs> yeah. 8th, or early, right? Like, it shouldn't be political, yeah. but it is political. And there are, are real consequences for that, and that shows up in this book, and that's part of what makes it so powerful is that you don't shy away from those stories. Yeah. I could talk to you all day, Rachel, but we have one, like, we have like 15 seconds left. So thank you for joining us on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Happy birthday, Adrian Whitney Pernay. I'm so glad you were born. I'm so glad you're 13.